I don't think it helps to be ideological about what is or isn't. And the so and and this I think re relates to your point around well if we're you know if organic farmers are using tillage then they can't be climate smart. That's 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 bogus, right? I mean we we know from a lot of research on farm and at experiment stations that um, organic systems are um, whether they're in spite of often in spite of their tillage they're accruing soil carbon right they don't have the embodied greenhouse gas emissions that are present in uh, synthetic fertilizers and uh, other non-renewable inputs um, you know they can have uh, reduced uh, nitrate leaching right and all of this is in the context of, of tillage or, or most of it so you can't tell me that like you know, because they're tilling, they're, they're, they don't count as, as being um, climate smart. Welcome to the Real Organic Podcast. I'm Lindley Dixon, co-director of the Real Organic Project. We're a grassroots, farmer-led movement with an add-on organic food label to distinguish organic crops that are grown in healthy soils and organic livestock that is raised on well-managed pasture. You just heard from Tim Bowles. He's a professor at UC Berkeley's Agroecology Lab, and his research focuses on enhancing farm biodiversity and various ecological practices. So if you tuned in last time, you heard my interview with Dr. Bowles about some of the incredible work that soil microbes do for us. Today, I'm sharing my conversation with him at this year's EcoFarm, which goes into a much more nuanced understanding of no-till systems and how that's greatly needed for better agricultural policies. You'll learn that no-till actually causes soil pore size and nutrient availability to decrease in the first decade transitioning to no-till and how this can be a huge problem for farmers. Like everything these days, we are greatly in need of greater understanding and a much more nuanced conversation around no-till especially, and Dr. Bowles delivers just that. So Tim, we left off last time we were talking um, where we did kind of a deep dive into some mm -hmm. of the stuff that's going on in the soil and yeah. that's so exciting to farmers and then we started talking about tillage right at the end mm -hmm. and it's such a hot topic right now because yeah, there are so many um, political implications for what gets funded as climate smart mm -hmm. and and what is the best kind of farming that we should really be striving towards right and we had a whole day yesterday for the eco farm pre-conference where we talked about this issue so I thought maybe we could start off with just some of the basics. Um, the take home that I got from yesterday was that there are a lot of trade-offs. Mm -hmm. And so let's let's just kind of dive into what some of those trade-offs are for tillage. And sure. the shocking thing to me was I think you were presenting data on no-till and all of it was chemical no-till. Yeah, that's There's right. very little organic studies out there. So maybe we can even start with that. Sure. Uh, we can start in either place. But yeah, I'll... I'll um, it's, it's definitely true that there are very few organic no-till studies out there, especially on what happens in the soil, right? I mean, there are a number that are looking at uh, changes in crop um, yields or crop performance, but um, the vast majority of work out there right now is on chemical no-till, right? And that's, you know, herbicide dependent and, and uh, 
often in the context of systems that are highly simplified in other ways too, you know, very low crop diversity, uh, often lacking cash crops. And so um, what we know about no-till from the scientific literature is uh, in terms of the time it takes to transition or uh, from a, a well-performing tillage system to a well-performing no-till system or um, what types of changes in the soil we might expect is against the backdrop of the broader context of these conventional systems, right? Where um, they're lacking in these other critical elements that might help an organic farmer um, uh, make this transition faster or um, uh, lead to, to, to different types of changes in soil, right? Because our organic farmers, we would expect at least to see more cash crop diversity using cover crops, um, thinking more holistically about the system rather than thinking about no-till as this practice that is dependent on, uh, you know, on herbicide and um, often transgenic crops to, to kind of match with those chemical inputs. And I feel what's always missing from the conversation and what you hear from farmers is yeah. that no-till, con conventional no-till has a lot of drawbacks in terms of greater erosion, which mm -hmm. I was surprised to hear. And I don't know if academia is talking about some of these. So, so fertilizers are surface applied. Right. And then any cracks in the soil, because these fertilizers aren't tilled in, they kind of run down the cracks and yeah. there's greater eutrophication um, in waterways from it. Uh, greater gully erosion from these cracks. And so I'm wondering if that's being discussed at all in academia, some of those downsides. I, I think interestingly enough, um, you know, I don't think the nuance is there yet in academia. Well, I'll say really broadly, right? And, and um, uh, to, with that type of nuance, I think no-till systems are still considered to be really beneficial for erosion and preventing erosion. Um, but some of the changes that we see in no-till systems, especially early on, is that um, we actually can see a decrease in infiltration uh, in, the, in, the, in the surface of soil. You know, one of the things that tillage does is, it, especially soon after tillage and the months following tillage, is it really creates a lot of macro pore space. It really, you know, it, it, anybody, anybody that's tilled would know this is fluffs up soil and that's one of the functions of it is to kind of um, uh, create a lot of uh, uh, opportunity for water to infiltrate. And so in no-till systems, um, uh, where that, where those macro pores aren't reforming, those these larger soil pores aren't reforming very quickly, we, we can see reduced water infiltration um, that could in turn lead um, to re increased erosion in certain circumstances. I but actually I want to pause yeah. on that because yeah. I was surprised. Yeah. I thought if you till, yeah. you're actually going to have the, the micro pores, like you're going to get rid of those earthworm tunnels and things like that. Right. And so you would have kind of a more... Uh, and this may just, you know. So I was yeah. surprised to hear your yeah. results yesterday right. that, like, uh, no till is actually more micropore space, which causes it to be harder to infiltrate. And at that's least, counterintuitive. At least early on in a transition period. And again, this is based on a lot of understanding from uh, more conventional systems. But we've seen some similar results, at least in a very small trial that we've done um, in Berkeley. With so organic systems. With, yeah, it was an organically managed system. It wasn't certified as part of our research station. Mm -hmm. um, but the, as part of this is a little bit about terminology and what we mean by, by micropores and macropores, right? Um, you know, half of the soil is void space, is pore space, right? So if we, by volume, roughly. That's half is solid and half is, is, uh, is this pore space. Yesterday in the session, um, and maybe you could link this, there's this new research that is able to visualize 
the pore space in soil at an extremely high resolution, like teeny tiny, like micron level resolution. It was like a cave. Yeah, it was like, like a cave. Like, yeah, the, yeah, all these tunnels, you know, big ones, small ones. And if we measure the diameter of all of these pores and um, in soil and we look at the proportion of the different sizes of pores that we see, we get kind of this distribution from like large pores, what we call macro pores, down to itty bitty bitty tiny ones. And these macro pores are the ones that are really formed by earthworms, by the channels left from roots that have, uh, uh, you know, moved through, grown through soil and then died and decomposed and then, and then they leave behind a channel. Um, those are those macro pores that are really important for water infiltration, they're really important for air movement in and out of soil. Um, these micro pores are smaller. Um, we, the cutoff is about uh, 50 microns. So that measurement, like that unit may not, it's hard for us to visualize that. The human hair is about 80 to 90 microns in diameter. So, so it's we're like- talking that width. We're talking that width. We're talking like smaller than, than a typical human hair, right? Uh -huh. Um, and these are where a lot of the water is held in soil, the water that's available for plants. And um, one of the functions of tillage is, one of the things that it does is that uh, mechanically, instead of by the action of, of earthworms and, and plant roots, is it creates more of these larger pores. Um, but you can imagine that, especially early on in the phase of after you cease tillage, you know, you've broken up a lot of these aggregates and, and yes, there's some these larger pore spaces that have resulted early on, but then that all starts to settle, right? Okay. And as those um, aggr soil aggregates that are kind of left, uh, we call them fragments sometimes in the context of tillage rather than aggregates because they're not formed by biological processes, they're formed by mechanical processes. They start to settle out. And so we actually do often see a decrease in these larger pore sizes uh, during early on in the phase of transition to no-till um, and a relative increase in the size of these smaller um, kind of mi micro pores. Now one study, and there hasn't been a lot of research on like the time of transition from till to no-till and the time of um, what's happening over time, but there was one interesting study that showed after about five to 10 years, you do see then the reformation of these macro pores in no-till systems because some of that biological activity is coming back. The earthworms are coming back, the um, you know, channels left by plant roots are beginning to, to, to really play a role. Um, uh, but that takes time. And the room just kind of was like, <laughs> yeah, the room was client. kind of like, uh, like this is, do we really have years? to time five to ten years? What kind of what kind of yield hit are we going to take over five to ten years? And that's yeah. so that's real. Yeah. That's, so that's let's real. talk about that yeah. yield hit and then um, nitrogen and oxygen sure. and kind yeah. of how they're they're really intimately tied. Absolutely. Yeah. So this, I mean, that was a common sentiment yesterday um, among these veteran growers. You know, I'd say, and I think. Uh, somebody said this in the room, you know, these, these might be among the most experienced specialty crop growers in the country. You know, these are uh, folks who really were pioneers early on in the organic movement. Um, and they've been experimenting with no-till and, and pretty much across the board uh, noted uh, pretty dramatic yield declines. Now these were, as I understand it, you know, they were, had tried no-till, um, you know, for kind of one, one year. So these were often first year numbers, but 
you know, close to yield failure in some cases, other cases not so bad, and they, they noted some ways in which they could uh, mitigate those yield declines through the use of plastic and that kind of thing. Um, but uh, one of the, at least from their experience and their observations, one of the potential reasons that they were seeing yield declines is a reduction in um, nitrogen uh, nutrition in the crop. And I say specifically nitrogen nutrition rather than nitrogen availability in the soil, um, because I want to like um, separate out the nitrogen that's available to plants into two sort of, I'll say categories. One is like what we often, what organic farmers are thinking about a lot, which is the mineralization of nitrogen from organic matter, right? The, the creation of plant available forms of ammonium and nitrate from organic nitrogen. From microbial From microbial uh -huh. breakdown, exactly. And that's the first one, right? The access that plants have to that nitrogen. In no-till systems, when we see this reduction in ma macropores, we might also see uh, a reduction or a change in plant root uh, distribution, plant root growth. It's harder for them to penetrate through soil that has lost a lot of these macropores. Um, there was some data that was showed yesterday showing the penetration resistance, how hard it is to push through soil. Yeah. And especially in the surface layers, it was harder in a no-till system to kind of push through that soil. So this lack of nitrogen nutrition or an apparent sort of um, lack of nitrogen nutrition in these early phases of the no-till transition for organic for these organic farmers may have been either a result of um, changes in the breakdown of organic nitrogen by microbes and or a change in how the plant roots uh, are able to access that nitrogen because of the changes in soil structure that have occurred. Um, so I'll pause there in case you, in case I've lost us here in the depths of nitrogen cycling and you want to ask a... No, a that makes sense. Yeah. I think um, it's so important here to keep yeah. in mind time. And so yeah. this is all initially, yeah. it is harder. And this goal of five to 10 years, that's where we're trying, trying to get to and right. maintain. Um, do you think, and maybe we just don't have the science yet, do you think that organic farmers could get there quicker because maybe the soil yeah. life can rebound uh, more quickly because there's the chemical inputs right. aren't there to kind of suppress I think that, that there's activity. reasons to expect that it could. Uh, I don't think we have solid evidence from the scientific side of things. There may be, you know, growers out there who have tried this may um, have experiences that are quite relevant here, right? But at least from the research side of things, I don't know of a lot of work looking at that transition phase and whether it's faster at an organic system or really well-performing organic system. But here are a few reasons why I think it could be. Um, one first is the, the reason that you mentioned, which is um, there's already would tend to be more microbial life um, in an organic soil. And the reformation of soil structure is dependent on soil life, right? we would not have soil structure without soil life. We would just have this, you know, um, <laughs> collection of sand, silt, and clay all packed down together, right? Um, and it's dependent on um, all soil life. It starts with microbes, right? 
the microbes and produce these biopolymers, almost like microbial glues, that begin to hold together the primary particles in soil, the individual grains of sand, silt, and clay that begin to be sort of bound together by these microbial glues. And are these glues like they're poop? <laughs> like are they're just getting rid of them as waste? No, they. Um, my my understanding is that they are uh, effectively creating their habitat. Okay. In a lot of ways. Uh -huh. um, so no, these aren't just their poop. These are particular uh, substances um, uh, that they're excreting for their own benefit. Yeah, uh -huh. they're EPS, extracellular polymeric. Uh, substances is, I believe, the, the, the term the that's used for them. Yeah, category. The big okay. category, right? And um, those are these, these little collections of individual grains of sand, silt, and clay uh, then themselves begin to be held together by things like fungal hyphal strands. And, and then uh, going a little bit bigger, those are in, end up being held together by, um, you know, uh, uh, some fine plant roots, right? And so we, we get this collection, this, this, these formation of aggregates from the little itty bitty tiny bits to the bigger macro aggregates and everything in between. And it's all dependent on soil life. And it's not just the, the, the microbes, it's the, um, it's the bigger critters as well. It's the beneficial nematodes, it's the columbola and the, Earthworms, of course, which are, you know, we are probably more familiar with, those are also forming these larger um, biopores. The mites. The mites, yeah, right. <laughs> Who farm fungi. Yeah, exactly, yeah, exactly <laughs> right. Um, all, everything is playing a role in the reformation of soil structure. So if an organic soil, kind of to circle back around, if an organic soil, soil already has more abundant life than, and it, that life can be really primed with a lot of um, uh, organic matter availability through whether that's through compost or through cover crop residue. Live roots are super important um, uh, or crop residue, you know, any of these sources of organic matter that really fuel all of this mi microbial life, then yeah, I would expect that soil structure to reform faster. Now there is one caveat here, which is that especially with these larger bodied organisms, the mites and the columbola and the earthworms, um, even some of the larger body beneficial nematodes, the predatory nematodes that are eating, um, you know, some of the plant parasitic nematodes. Those are the organisms that also we tend to lose the most in tilled systems because their bodies are big enough that they're actually physically disrupted from, from the mechanical process of tillage. And so um, there's some, you know, e ecological questions here too of like, Okay, well, if these organisms have been, um, their abundance can be much, much lower in a tilled system, um, where do they come from to sort of um, re, um, uh, uh, reconstitute the, that soil? Now, they can travel from deeper in the subsurface sometimes, right? Of course, earthworms are migrating up and down all the time. Um, so they may be around, they may be able to get there, and, and, um, uh, but it is a process of restoration you can think of it that way too, right? And restoration is hard. Anybody that's worked in, you know, trying to restore a grassland, uh, you know, uh, or, or any other ecosystem, like restoration is hard. Takes time. Takes yeah. time, yeah. So I, I wanna um, kind of rest on the 
very opening or like spend some time on the very opening of the day. We looked at soil health principles and Tom Willie put them up there. And I see this all over the place and there's, there's five. Right. And the NRCS, you know, does it. And so they're kind of all over the place. So any regenerative website will do it. Sure. And I leaned over to Scott Park next to me and I go, which one's missing? Do you know which one was missing? Is it organic matter inputs or? Uh, it was, it was um, reduction in, in chemicals. Oh, reaction in chemicals. Yeah, yeah right. And yeah. I, and he well, goes, and this is a regenerative, you know, this is part of the problem with the regenerative agriculture broadly, right? But yeah. go ahead. I'm no, sorry. Scott goes, well, that's obvious. We're talking about soil health. <laughs> and I go, it's actually not that obvious. No. I think it's missing yeah. for a reason. Yeah. I, I think, you know, I, I think this has been a long criticism of regenerative agriculture, right? That, that it's, uh, and which I, and, and yeah, I think the soil health principles are, of course, are very much linked in with the regenerative movement. Um, and that, that we sort of gloss over the chemical side of things a lot. Um, and, and I, you know, and we started out talking about the dependence of, chem, of conventional no-till systems on widespread herbicide use, um, which has, uh, you know, some, I'd say, unclear, the herbicides at least have, I think, some unclear uh, uh, impacts on, on soil and soil health, but clearly things like the fungicides um, and, you know, uh, uh, um, uh, the soil fumigants and this kind of thing are, are very clearly impacting soil, soil health and soil life. But even yeah. fertilizers, because, you know, we talked in, in the last session how even if you're going to do experiments with mycorrhizae, it's like you can't have phosphorus there because then they're just not going to make those interactions, right? So yeah, isn't, isn't it, fertilizer a big it, reason? Fertilizer can, can also be a, a, an issue. I mean, and I'll say like just to, you know, we've talked a lot about, you know, bringing nuance to these conversations yeah. and, and phosphorus can be an issue with organic too. True. And yep. um, uh, particularly if, if, if there's um, a lot of manure inputs. If there's a lot of manure inputs, mm -hmm. right? The the nitrogen to phosphorus ratio yeah. of a lot of organic um, inputs is, is low. And if you're basing the rate of that application on the nitrogen needs, then you're going to be over applying phosphorus. Yeah. And we've seen this in long-term um, experiments on organic that they tend to be accumulating soil phosphorus at a yeah. higher rate. Not to, so this is, so it's, it's just, to, just to bring a little bit of nuance there, but it, it, um, but I actually absolutely. think that's an important yeah. distinction because a lot of the farmers that I'm talking about um, who are some of the best farmers in the country, yeah. uh, like the Emily Oakleys of the world, uh, right. Mark Askegaard, they don't apply any manure and right. they're, they're depending on their cover crops yeah. for their fertility. And the question is, where do these guys fit? Because they, you know, I, I mentioned it yesterday, intelligent tillage, right. where they're incorporating a lot of biomass once right. a year, right before they're planting. Right. So, so is that climate smart <laughs> or, you know, like uh, this is important yeah. right now because our government is putting, I mean, they just put $3 billion into climate smart and right. those aren't the farmers that were getting funded because they till. Well, and that's, and, and what I would love to see is, is well, a few things, one multiple, uh, pathways to you know to getting to what's climate smart there's no one definition of or one system that that represents oh this is climate smart right i think i think i think growers can get there in a number of different ways okay um, let's unpack that well in the sense that like um uh i don't think that being um I don't think it helps to be ideological about what is or isn't in the, so, and, and this I think re relates to your point around 
well, if we're, you know, if organic farmers are using tillage, then they can't be climate smart. That's, 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 that's bogus, right? I mean, we, we know from a lot of research on farm and at experiment stations that um, organic systems are, um, whether they're in spite of, often in spite of their tillage, they're accruing soil carbon, right? They don't have the embodied greenhouse gas emissions that are present in uh, synthetic fertilizers and uh, other non-renewable inputs. Um, you know, they can have uh, reduced uh, nitrate leaching, right? And all of this is in the context of, of tillage, or, or most of it. So you can't tell me that like, you know, because they're tilling, they're, they're, they don't count as, as being um, climate smart. Um, and so I think the... I can't tell you, but that's the story in Washington. Sure, so we have sure, to overcome sure, yeah, this. Yeah, 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 exactly, <laughs> right. But I, and I think, um, I mean, maybe to get, I'm also not surprised that the conventional industry is being quite agile and uh, opportunistic here to reframe what they're doing in the context of climate smart. Um, you know, the uh, chemical dependent no-till is, is not a systems change. It's not a, it's not a systems redesign. You know, it is a, a tweak to an industrial system. Um, Yeah, so it's 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 there's nothing about it that is that is uh, fundamentally changing that that agricultural system. Um, you know, now do I also think that there, you know, should be at least some pathways for conventional farmers to um, to improve their their practices and to you know include individual practices that might be more climate smart? Yes, and and you know my I think we get a lot more um, at, at least in the conventional systems I think we get a lot more multiple benefits out of things like integration of cover crops. Yeah. Um, with biomass. With biomass. <laughs> that yeah. gets forgotten a lot of times right. too. I think a lot of people are tilling them under when they're a couple inches above the soil because the, uh -huh. the timing of getting their crop in at a certain time. Sure. Organic farmers tend to say, no, I need the biomass right. and I'll plant later. Right. Right. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's the biomass that's creating the, the ecosystem services, yep. right? It's, yep. it, you know, um, increases in crop rotational diversity, right? These are things that provide our you know, tried and true ways to provide a lot of benefits, not just for climate, but also for um, biodiversity, for, you know, nutrient availability and reductions in the nutrient losses, reductions in the need for non-renewable inputs. Um, and so, um, um, so I think, um, so, I, you know, I, I think that those types of practices should be available for, for conventional growers to um, to move towards more kind of climate smart or regenerative or whatever term we're using. Um, but conversely, I, you know, the idea that an organic farmer is not uh, climate smarter because they're continuing to use tillage in a system that is otherwise um, uh, functioning really well and, and relying on, um, uh, not relying on any non-renewable inputs. I mean, that, that, uh, uh, that that doesn't make much sense to me. What were your thoughts on the well? I'm a tweener confessions <laughs> yesterday. These uh, farmers yeah. that are tilling a little bit, you know. Well, I think I think that's maybe where there's a lot of sweet spot. Um, is is and these questions that were posed by um, uh, by Phil Foster and Scott Park and others around. Well, how much tillage can I get away with? You know, I need. You know, I want to do a little bit. And whether that's for working in biomass, terminating cover crops, you know, Phil Foster was talking about he needs to undercut his cover crops. Mm -hmm. so, At nine inches. Uh, yeah, yeah, and, and um, uh, how much can we get away with 
while still to, to do what we need to do in these systems to make our cover crops work, to um, get the seed bed that we need. Um, uh, for whatever reason it is, how much can we get away with and still get a lot of the benefits that we would see in a no-till system? Yeah. Um, and, and I think that that's the critical question. Um, because, because the benefits of, of getting that biomass in for nutrient availability yeah, really might important. outweigh the, the two inches that Scott Park goes under or something. Right. And, you know, these farmers are all, um, they're amazing people, right? And they're always about continual improvement. Yeah. And so maybe this is part of their broader transition. Maybe, you know, maybe in a few decades, we will get to the point of having the confluence of knowledge and technology and experience to be able to get to a really a complete no-till system. Maybe we will. Inorganic. Inorganic. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, but for right now, let's let's we can try to be judicious about what's going, and that's good for the farmers too, right? If they're reducing their passes, if they're reducing the depth of tillage, they're also reducing their fuel use, uh-huh. right? I mean, these are these are things that provide benefits beyond just the soil too. So, um, uh, I don't think, and so this this certainly gave me a lot of fodder for like, oh, these these are a lot of research questions that we could potentially help out with, and yeah, um, in terms of trying to answer some of the like, well, what. Um, Okay, so if the top couple of inches, three or four inches is disturbed, do we see, um, I'll say, a more like natural soil structure beneath that? And is that um, providing the benefits that we hope that it would? Um, Let's talk about, um, I always see this um, fungal to bacterial ratio, and I kind of brought up the question, yeah. is this meaningful based on what those fungi are actually doing? Yeah. And, and often when we say fungi in our circles, we're talking about our vascular mycorrhizal sure. fungi and not necessarily saprophytic fungi right. that are breaking all this biomass down. Yep. And so is that measurement even helpful? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I question it all the time. I'm like, what are yeah. we actually looking at here? I, and what depth, are, right? It's, yeah. a, it's a confusing world out there. It, it's certainly been called into question okay. about its utility. And, um, and I think... Uh, and I won't. I don't know the history of it well enough to, to speculate. But but I am a bit cautious or skeptical that it's a really useful metric to aim for. That is increasing the fungal to bacterial ratio. You know, fungi are important. They, uh, you know, the mycorrhizal fungi are playing these. We talked about it last time. Playing these incredibly important roles in helping plants access nutrients. Um, Amazing scientist, Jennifer Petridge from the Lawrence Livermore Laboratory, amazing microbial ecologist brought up yesterday about how um, some of the carbon in fungal cell walls is the same type of carbon that we see as the most persistent soil carbon in soil. So the carbon that has been, that these fungi, the saprophytic fungi have acquired through the breakdown of organic matter and then decomposed as their bodies die. That's some of the carbon that's really linked to longer term carbon accrual. So the fungi are clearly important. And the bacteria are too, right? The bacteria are able um, to uh, grow really quickly. Their populations can increase and decrease really quickly so they can respond to a, say, a a big pulse of um, organic matter availability, like when a cover crop's turned in and they can turn that into nitrogen availability, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so they're fast. Um, and so they, you know, both sets of, of organisms are important. Um, and um, and they, they, and 
another thing that Jennifer Petridge mentioned yesterday was that they're also acting a lot in concert with each other, right? Um, fungal highways that are transporting um, bacteria from uh, one, uh, 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 one little soil microsite to another, right? Um, across an air gap maybe that they wouldn't otherwise be able to travel and allows them to get to a new little juicy bit of organic material, a new, new habitat. Um, so there's all, all kinds of ways that fungi and bacteria are working together and they play some complementary and different roles. Uh, bacteria tend to have a much uh, broader suite of metabolic capabilities in terms of what the types of materials that they're able to break down. So, with the uh, help of bacteria. With the, yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. And so, so it's, it's, a, it's both and in my yeah. mind. I don't, um, I, I think, uh, um, uh, uh, and so I think if, and I think where this comes up is I've seen um, in a couple of contexts, farmers uh, who have been, you know, getting, uh, having some consternation about, oh, I, I really, you know, I've, I've been doing all these things and my fungal bacteria to ratio is just stuck. It's just not moving anywhere. I'm like, I don't know that that's a problem, uh -huh. you know. It's we should be too... talking about maybe what's, what is there. Yeah. So it's amazing with this sequence data now, we can take a look at everything yeah. that is present. Do we have any way of saying abundance? Like, you know, from that sequence data, right? It's a nice even distribution, or yeah. or maybe we're seeing a lot of this, but not a lot of this. You right. know, do we have that capability? We are um, growing in that capability. There's some really cool new techniques now that actually allow um, for sequencing and, and identification of actually just not just microbes, but also soil fauna, um, and a lot of these methods are able to tell us. Uh, kind of who's present and a little bit about their relative numbers like oh well this group is probably more than this other group um, it's a little bit trickier to get to like the absolute amount like to translate that into like this many pounds of biomass per acre for instance um, but certainly we have these DNA tools that are allowed that are allowing us to not only um, catalog uh, uh, the microbial community but also the soil funnel community. And by faunal, just, I mean, you know, the, the, the larger body, the animals down there, the nematodes and the mites and the calendula and all yeah. of that. Um, and this is so important because I saw a study and this was a peer reviewed published study about how glyphosate is good for the soil health because there's like a bacterial, um, like, uh, abundance right after you spray it yeah. and then they're breaking it down. Right. And so it's like, well, okay, we got a lot of this, uh, bacterial, right. you know, whatever, right. um, mix right. that likes to break down glyphosate and and that's soil health according to this yeah. <laughs> article right so i just uh, <laughs> right. sometimes it's so frustrating it's like well it's it's published and so you know therefore we know you know and it's like <laughs> sometimes we have some trouble in, in in peer review too to get um yeah just one study isn't isn't all that's needed no to develop not, a good not, picture not not at all and also we get um you know as terms like soil health become yeah more prevalent and more prominent and you know we're, we're, we're it's inevitable we're going to see people trying to to co-opt that a yeah. little bit yeah it's just kind of the way things are yeah. i remember um when dave interviewed miguel altieri he asked him what is the difference in your mind between organic and agroecology yeah and miguel said well there's a political component to yeah. agroecology and so we have a responsibility as scientists to be a little bit more active yeah. politically. And I don't know if you agree with that, if, if that you see that as part of your role in agroecology. Yeah, I absolutely do. I think um, 
And that, make, that might make some scientists feel really uncomfortable. Yeah, it's not what we were trained to do. Right. Yeah. And so at the risk of being on a soapbox a little bit, I think I'll, I'll share, I think, why I feel that way and, and why I think it's also okay for scientists to do this. Um, you know, the, I'll say the other side, right? The industrial agriculture and, and all of the different ways that our society props it up they're not shy about being political, right? <laughs> right? Um, in fact, they've, they've had incredible political success. Right? That's why the, most of our federal policies are aimed uh, at, you know, most of our USDA policies are aimed at supporting that. Um, so scientists don't have the, at least I hope we don't have the luxury of just sitting on the sidelines in this. Now, others might say, well, what about your credibility? What about, um, doesn't that make you biased? And because you might have, and I'd say no, because what's important is that we're transparent about um, what, how, how we ask questions, what questions we choose to ask, um, and that we're rigorous. So if, if, um, if the data that I'm collecting um, don't tell the story that, that I want it to say, I'm not going to, I'm not going to tell a different story. I'm going to, I'm not going to hide that. Um, and so there's this notion that like, um, I think there's a, a, a misplaced um, notion around what objectivity or neutrality is. I, I think as humans, we are not able to be objective or neutral. Even the questions that we choose to ask, if we, we can pretend they're apolitical, but they're never apolitical, right? And so a scientist that is like, well, I'm just going where the science goes, or I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm responding to the questions that are coming from, well, what, to, from, from the farmers. Well, what, what farmers are you choosing to work with? What, which, who are you choosing to listen to? Um, you know, uh, uh, so we can be transparent about that. <laughs> And so I would argue that in a lot of ways, folk, uh, that, that, we, that these principles of transparency and rigor are really what we need, um, uh, both in how we ask questions, how we share our data, right? Data transparency is becoming a much bigger thing now, right? Um, and so that others can validate our, the conclusions that we draw from studies. Um, so that was kind of a soapbox, but to step back to the broader question of, of yeah, I think... Um, and for me, that looks like um, the the political side of it can be, um, you know, being um, in close touch and close contact and conversation and collab ongoing collaboration with um, uh, advocacy groups that um, are based on um, understanding what farmers are um, looking for, what they what their needs are, um, with farmer organizations. Um, uh, organizations like Community Alliance with Family Farmers here in California that does amazing work on the ground um, with, you know, uh, technical support, uh, but is also understanding what are, types of policies need to change in the state of California or federally to help uh, small and mid-sized farmers thrive. Um, and what kind of information needs might uh, I be able to help with, right? Because that's... Um, and being able to design research that, that aims at those information needs for the types of policy change that, that we're aiming for. Um, so um, 
short answer to your question is yes. And because <laughs> climate is the political issue of yeah. our time, I kind of want to dive into some of what Hannah talked about yesterday, which was the most challenging scientifically. Yeah. So we'll see if we can do it. Uh, but I also, you had your pool of nitrogen, and I want to get there too. Sure. Uh, because I had a big light bulb moment when you described that. So I want to do both of those things. And I think they're related. And I think they're related to climate because nitrous oxide emissions came up too. Yeah, and right. so I'm wondering if we can kind of unpackage some of both Hannah's and your presentation yep. on this interplay between um, nitrogen, what no-till does to nitrogen availability. Mm -hmm. You talked about increased nitrous oxide emissions from mm -hmm. no-till. Mm -hmm. And I'm. let's start with that. Why does that happen? Sure. I'm wondering if it happens more in... Uh, the chemical no-till than it would in an organic system. Right. And then we'll go from there and talk more about nitrogen. Sure. Well, let's start with a little bit um, of everybody's, at least my favorite topic, the nitrogen cycle. Okay, uh, good. No, but, um, nitrogen, the, you know, the nitrogen cycle and all of the different forms that nitrogen can take in soil from organic nitrogen, right? Leftovers of compost or plant material to ammonium and nitrate to production of gases like nitrous oxide. All of these, the conversion of one of these forms into another is really dependent on oxygen, which in turn is really dependent on water, right? Um, so these are what are called reduction and oxidation chemical reactions. So we don't need to go too deep into what that is, but the point is that the Reactions that change one form into another are really dependent on the amount of oxygen that microbes have available because different microbial groups are active during different uh, levels of, of oxygen in the soil. So we talked earlier about how um, uh, with no-till systems, at least the what we understand from largely kind of chemical conventional based no-till systems that um, at least early on, we see a reduction in macropores and an increase in, in micropores that would tend to limit oxygen flow into soil and make them a little bit more anoxic. That is, have they have a less oxygen relative to um, an, a tilt system. And that also might be because they have a little bit more moisture in them. So that pore space, instead of having air, it has water. And when that happens, the two processes in soil that lead to nitrous oxide, there are two of them. One is nitrification, so the conversion of ammonium into nitrate. And the other one is denitrification, which is the conversion of nitrate in back into atmospheric or inert forms of nitrogen. That one in particular happens there's more denitrification, there's more nitrous oxide emitted as kind of like a byproduct when soils are really wet and when there's less oxygen available. So I hope I haven't confused everybody, but that, the, try to reframe it in a, in a uh, simpler way, which is no-till soils, we tend to be a little bit wetter, a little bit more oxygen, that would tend to make the nitrogen cycle produce more nitrous oxide. A little bit less oxygen. Sorry, a little yes. bit less oxygen. Okay. Yeah, a little bit less oxygen and a little bit more nitrous oxide. Now, the other really important part of this, and because you, you mentioned potential differences between conventional and no-till systems, 
is that the the substrate or the 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 the, the chemical form of nitrogen that is leading to nitrous oxide is nitrate. We would tend to see a lot more nitrate in systems that are in conventional systems that are using synthetic fertilizers because often that either because it's that's the form that they're applying directly <laughs> or if it's urea for instance it's going to be very quickly converted into nitrate so there tends to be a lot more nitrate sitting around in conventional systems. So yeah I do think that nitrous oxide production would be uh, as a result of the transition to no-till would, would be higher in a conventional system than an organic system, most likely. Okay. Yeah. And then can we get to um, how uh, confusing soil <laughs> measurements might yeah. be? If you, if you get a low reading, you presented this graph where there were two really low readings, and yeah. one of them was actually you need to apply more nitrogen based on this reading and the exact uh, similar reading was no you're just fine yeah and you um envisioned it with okay so we've got a small pool of nitrogen but let's talk about nitrogen flow right so you put this beautiful image in my head of like a huge waterfall and then a huge exit yeah. out of that small pool and then right. you're fine if that's your situation so what type of a situation might have a huge waterfall coming in in the soil sure. and a huge uh, uh, exit from yeah. that small pool? Maybe I'll scaffold a little okay, bit good. to get here. Yeah, explain it better than I did. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's just some interesting history that I think is important to remember. Um, plants and agricultural systems mainly take up two forms of nitrogen, ammonium and nitrate. And for a long time, that's been the primary focus uh, fertility in agriculture. And that dates way, way back to the 19th century. There was a, in part because it was a chemist, Justice von Liebig, who identified which uh, nutrients in soil that plants needed. And since then, there's been a strong sort of chemistry focus on fertility and nutrition um, in an agricultural context. Also with the explosion of synthetic fertilizers in the early 20th century that can directly add these inorganic forms of nitrogen, ammonium and nitrate, that has kind of reinforced this soil, this, this really this focus on soil chemistry. So for, for over, you know, for a century and a half, the, there's been this just kind of laser focus on ammonium and nitrate as the forms of nitrogen that plants can take up. So it would make sense if we measured those, <laughs> right? As to say, how much nitrogen is available for a crop? Well, we should measure the forms that they're taking up. That makes sense. Until it doesn't make sense. <laughs> that... Um, when we measure those forms of nitrogen, if you send your soil off to a, a test lab and they send you a report back and they say this is your nitrate value, um, you're measuring what's called the pool of, nitrog of, of nitrate in the soil. So um, just what's kind of sitting around. Um, however, that's not really appreciating how dynamic, how quickly that pool can change. So that waterfall sort of imagery that you mentioned is, is one that I like to use, right? Because 
If we bring in the biology as well as the chemistry into this understanding, we remember that there are these microbes around <laughs> and they're rapidly breaking down organic matter. And as part of that, they're releasing ammonium through the process of mineralization. And so we can imagine that process of microbial mineralization as this waterfall coming into our pool of available nitrogen. So I like to, you know, if anybody's over the summer looks for a little a swimming hole up in the mountains, we're lucky here in California, we can go up to the Sierra foothills, find a beautiful little swimming hole. It might just be a little swimming hole, but there might be a hell of a lot of water coming into it, right? Especially after a good year of snow melt. So what's going out? What's, what's the outflow from that? Well, the outflow from that is what plants are taking up. And it's also what microbes are taking up as well, because microbes are also cycling these forms of nitrogen. They release it from organic material. And then others might grab it up, those, uh, that ammonium and that nitrate as well. So plants and microbes are both taking it up. So that's the, what's coming out of our little mountain stream pool, right? So we have, but we could imagine that we might have a little pool sitting around in our mountain stream, but we have a big waterfall coming into it and a big outflow going out. And so if we imagine part of that outflow is what plants are taking up, well, they might not be nitrogen limited, even if there's a small pool around, because there's so much flow in the system. Now we might contrast that with a conventional system where there's not a lot of soil life, where microbial activity is not as high. There's not as much um, kind of juicy organic matter sitting around, where that might just be a trickle coming in to that pool. And so the size of that pool might be really important and indicative of nitrogen availability. So when we just, when we measure in soil nitrate, particularly in organic systems, it can be kind of tricky to interpret. Um, this was what the data that you mentioned was from a study about 15 years ago um, that I did with um, organic growers all of whom were growing tomatoes as part of a, their larger diversified operations, but that was the common crop I was looking at. And after measuring all sorts of things uh, over the whole growing season, um, I kind of found three kind of groups of farms. Uh, one had low levels of soil nitrate. The other two, or excuse me, two had low levels of soil nitrate, this pool of nitrogen that we're measuring. And a third had higher levels. Can I yeah. step back? Is this organic or a mix? No, this was all organic. All organic. All okay. organic. Maybe right. you said that, but I missed yeah. it. Um, so you had three types. Three types. And in one group that had low nitrate, we also saw low yields and uh, low amounts of nitrogen in the, in the leaf tissue of the plant. So those systems did appear to be nitrogen limited. But in, a, in another group that also had similarly low values of soil nitrate, they had yields above the county average, which included conventional processing tomatoes, and uh, their, the nitrogen in the leaf tissue was just fine. So soil nitrate, which we rely on so much as a metric of nitrogen availability, was like, well, it could either mean you have a problem <laughs> or it could mean you're doing great. Yeah. Um, and so it becomes tricky to have this measurement that is really um, a static measurement of, soil, of a soil chemical constituent in an organic system 
where if, if, if you've done a lot of work to build up soil life and to build up organic matter over time, it really may not be telling you the full story. I kind of see on. it as like your waterfall and pool image works really yeah. well, but like a roundabout too. Uh, so you've got a lot of cars coming in and then a lot of cars yeah, going out. Right. It's like, yeah, how round, busy yeah. is this roundabout, right. Right? right? When I hear all of these stories, I'm like, why are we talking about tillage? And you can correct me <laughs> if I'm wrong. I'm like, we should be talking about organic matter, mm. which is so central yeah. to organic farming. We've always, without any science to back us, right? The scientists thought we were all loony forever, yeah. like before my time always knew that there was something to organic matter and right. whether you're a chemical or a, an organic system, let's start talking about that, mm -hmm. the, the biomass that we can include through cover cropping. Or I think, I think that needs to be the question, yeah. not tillage. And maybe there is something to tillage over, you know, longer terms if we can get there as like this ultimate pedestal. But I think first we need to start talking about organic matter. Yeah. I, I and, and I would add a couple of things there. One is that um, what, what, what excited me about the conversation yesterday was that it was a platform, to, and that was this conversation around no-till and organic systems, was that it became kind of a way of talking about, um, I'll say, more system redesign, stepping back a little bit. So it's not just organic matter, but it's also living roots. It's also a uh, presence of mulch, which is a form of organic matter. The it, composition of the, the organic and matter. And the compos composition of the yeah. organic matter, right? So it gave us a platform to, to like step back a little bit and say, well, we're trying to do this no-till stuff. Um, what are other creative elements that need to come in to sort of keep, um, uh, you know, keep failing forward, <laughs> keep, uh -huh. keep sort of pushing the boundaries here um, in ways that lead to broader, broader redesign. Um, you know, uh, things like um, Eric Morgan at Braga Fresh, you know, thinking about, well, the, all the challenges of no-till and maybe um, intercropping the cash crop with a live cover crop in the furrows was a way forward, you know, to, so the roots could help alleviate some of the compaction that the no-till systems, right? This is super creative and like boundary pushing stuff, at least here in California specialty crop system. Uh -huh. So to me, it was like the no-till was like part of it, but it was also pushing all of us to think about, um, you know, just more system redesign. Yeah. Um, uh, so I, that in terms of just like a continual improvement kind of thing, can yeah. be, I think can be kind of, kind of fun. Yeah. And it's great to get uh, researchers together with farmers. Yeah. So that's, that's what was fun about yesterday. Right. So your secretary, Bill Sack, just to kind of put an end to this uh, conversation and, and, and what does the future of agriculture look like? And you have $3 billion and it's going to be a lot more for right. climate smart farming. What are you funding? Whew. That's a great <laughs> question. Um, well, I want to, I, you know, I would want to use those dollars to help spur a more fundamental agroecological transition. Um, and I'd want to do it in ways that really did lead to what I call system redesign. And I don't, it's not just me who calls it that. It's, it's, it's um, other agroecologists, other people working in this area. So 
not just little changes in practices that lead to, say, increased fertilizer use efficiency or um, in conventional systems, but really getting us to rethink how uh, the, the nature of, 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 these, of these systems um, in ways that are increasing crop diversity, um, are leading to more integration of uh, more use of agroforestry systems in the U.S., right? Really pushing for rethinking um, how these systems are designed. And um, rather than this continual focus on individual practices, right? Um, a lot of this conversation, especially in the regenerative, is like, okay, no-till, cover crops, right? And that, those are important, but they're not really redesigning these systems fundamentally. More integration of livestock, right? So, um, and then the second way is to um, continue to develop uh, the market relationships that are going to allow farmers to be able to make these changes and, and have a solid market um, in a way that is uh, uh, accessible from, from, from kind of an economic justice standpoint, right? Um, and, you know, that, um, that, that allows all, you know, many, many people to be able to participate in this transition. Um, so, you know, I'm excited, for instance, about the possibilities for public procurement, right? And all the folks working in uh, farm to school kind of situations, farm to university, farm to prison, right? Um, and on all the ways that these billions and billions of dollars that we're spending on, on uh, um, public procurement are, are really, at this point at least, really about sopping up the excesses of our commodity crops, um, not about supporting our regional food system that is healthy, both for uh, people eating the food and the farmers. So I don't know. So it's a broad answer to your question, <laughs> but I, I want to get us, uh, I'd, I'd love to get us beyond just um, you know, payments for simple practices um, and really thinking more about how do we spur a, a deeper redesign of the system that we have. And it's actually, it seems like it's going in the opposite direction of outcomes based. Like if we get a soil carbon organic matter reading that's higher, then, right. you know, you get some money and you, you need to pay us back that goes down next year. So it seems I'm, like it's going the opposite direction. I'm really concerned about, yeah. The outcome systems. stuff is, I, I understand the the rationale on one hand for outcomes-based verification, um, you know, especially for folks in the policy space who don't have a deep understanding of the, uh, of farming and agriculture. Um, and you know, okay, okay. It seems fair. You want to, you want to know whether it really happened or not. Um, at the same time, um, I think we might be get one, it's, it's hard to do the verification. Um, and that, that's been a perennial challenge, but, but I think more deeply than that, we are, I think we're making a mistake because of, of just having this laser focus on greenhouse gas emissions and soil carbon. Yeah. We got to like try to fix the climate crisis <laughs> at the same time. We can't, I think anytime we have a singular goal, there's going to be broader trade-offs that were that are unanticipated. I'd love to see us take a more um, with system redesign. We might not just be sequestering carbon and reducing greenhouse gas emissions, but also 
um, improving water quality and reducing the need for pesticides and uh, restoring biodiversity, right? That's what agroecology brings is this perspective on redesign and like multiple benefits rather than just like, a, well, we have a metric, say changes in soil carbon or reductions in greenhouse gas emissions, any pathway to get there is fine. The sort of um, uh, agnostic approach I think um, might lead to uh, a further kind of entrenchment of industrial agriculture if they can find ways to, to kind of to do that, to, to meet the, the narrow goal of, of uh, changing these metrics. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, uh, it gets complicated when you're uh, someone who's just buying food and you're trying to support <laughs> yeah, the right sure. kind of farming, right? Yeah, and so sure. traditionally that's been labels um, yeah. and agroecology has kind of avoided that. Yeah. What are your thoughts on how we are able to really support best practices and well, the farmers that are trying to do all this? I mean, I think, um, you know, I... Labels, of course, have a, have played a really important role for creating the premiums that organic farmers rely on. At the same time, I think, you know, my understanding is if of the research on kind of consumer understanding of labels is that nobody understands them. There's a lot out there. <laughs> and there's there. a, so many out there. So yeah. it's like more labels, I, I don't think is the answer. It's, yeah. We're just going to keep confusing people. Um, and we've relied, the theory of change has been around this kind of vote with your fork idea. And I just don't think that, that may be part of it, but I think the, I think that that's a really limited theory of change. Um, I think we have to deal with this from a public policy standpoint. Um, and I also worry that like that theory of change leaves out a lot of people who, um, you know, are struggling to make ends meet, just period, right? Um, and who are going to be looking for um, uh, you know, ways to pay the bills and ways to get food. And, and if what does that say if, if folks like that can't uh, to be they, if they can't afford to be purchasing organic premiums? Does that mean they don't have a role to play? That that to me doesn't sit right. So I want to. I think it has to come through deeper changes in public policy that remove the many subsidies and incentives we have for industrialized systems and at the same time creates um, a new set of incentives and pathways for um, organic and, and agroecological farmers. And, 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 that, and, and so, so part of that can be the role of consumers, but I don't think that's the theory of change that we, that it's going to get us there personally. And I know that may be controversial. No, I agree. <laughs> it's, it's, it, I think it's, it's not one thing, like yeah. you said, right? I think we're going to need to attack this from all ends. Right. Um, I, I, if there's anything else I didn't cover, please feel free to chime in right now as your last chance. No, I appreciate the questions and the conversation. We've gone in um, a lot of fun directions. So thank you for, uh, thank you for, for your time. You had some big shoes to fill with Miguel, and I, I really appreciate the complexity that you bring to all of these questions and the deep systems thinking that you have. So I, I think it's a perfect fit, and I'm excited to kind of follow where your research goes. Great. Thank with you, your, With your whole lab, too. I appreciate so thank that. You. Thank you for listening to The Real Organic Podcast. Our movement is growing because you're subscribing and you're sharing these podcasts with your friends. So keep it up and you can leave us a rating and a review as well. You can find a video version of this interview on our newly designed website, realorganicproject.org, or on our YouTube channel. You can join us every Tuesday for a new episode 
featuring voices from the organic movement. So see you next time.